what conditions are stipulations. back for part two of a multi-part thing on why people should vote and why it's really important to do so even if it requires holding your nose in the midterms and then eventually in the next presidential election. So I won't waste anyone's time up top. Let's talk about what this episode is going to cover. So first, I think we ended last time on speculating and prepping for what the impact or really the lack of impact is of not voting or oftentimes unless it's in like a super local election uh, voting third party and now the fact that i'm acknowledging this and that i'm talking about any of of this is not per se an endorsement of a two-party system um, it's not to say don't plan for and don't strategize long term for things that would allow a more diverse and proportional representative political system in this country. I'm absolutely for all those things. Um, but in the interim, the votes that we cast now do have immediate and pretty large scale impacts. So um, third party and we'll get into why, is not really um, an option that gets us anywhere. Um, I'll explain in less hedgy terms later. Um, so then we're going to go from not voting and voting third party to the importance of the converse, which is voting, even if it feels like a futile exercise or, you know, uh, some of us vote in blue states, some of, some of us vote in red states, some of us vote in purple states, but it doesn't always feel like it's super important to be casting a vote. If you either feel like you're voting with the large majority, or if you feel like it is totally not going to make a difference and you're shouting into the void. Um, I guess you could be shouting into the void on either side, but I get it. Still important. Um, and then the importance of planning strategies that work, both in the immediate sense and in the long term. And so this kind of harkens back to what I was talking about with, um, you know, make big plans and make really detailed plans for dismantling the system. Go for it. Let's look at what is the most practical, but also think about what is going to protect you and your less fortunate colleagues and citizens and city mates, whatever, in the immediate term, because those are two very different strategies. Um, and nothing gets dismantled in the span of one election, unless that election is the last in the series of many incremental changes. Anyways, so then the last thing we're going to do is evaluate different institutional strategies, see what is the most practical, because things like, uh, you know, strategies that would require amending the Constitution, let alone those that call for fully dismantling and advocating for anarchy. I get it. It feels good because like I also want to burn it down a lot of the time. And then I also want to burn it down in a metaphorical sense when I feel really defeated, which I do frequently in a political sense now. 
<laughs> like, I really get it. But I'm here to be mom and sternly but lovingly sit everyone down and say, that's not enough of a structure for our plan going forward. And we really need a plan going forward. So no burning, but let's get to thinking. Love, mom. <laughs> okay, so let's start with the actual impact of not voting or of voting third party. And so the spoiler here is that there's not a huge actual impact. Um, there's really a lack of an impact. It's kind of a broken record cliche by this point to hear the refrain that voting third party is throwing your vote away. Um, and I know a lot of folks, especially those who feel really fed up with the options in a two-party system, um, fully understandably, it's not a lot of options. So I know that people kind of roll their eyes at that refrain. Um, and certainly we are closer now than I think we have been ever in recent history to actually desperately needing a third party enough that it is being toyed with on a, a pretty large scale and people are trying to make that happen. Um, and you also see fracturing within the two major parties that exist because people are really divergent within the parties and uh, the divergence of each side is making it harder to reach compromise for very understandable reasons because the two... And then within each party, that makes it harder to find middle ground. <laughs> Fucking, I don't know. You, you guys know this part. I don't have to summarize this part. But one thing that I think is important to do, because I don't hear it talked about a lot, is talk about why the third party won't win and why it is not a useful strategy, say, in the next election or the next one after that to vote, especially the national elections, again, because... Um, you know, local and statewide structures, there's more room for, you know, deviating from the system, kind of doing grassroots takeovers of political communities um, within or without of the party. Because I also think that we should be thinking more about like taking over the Democratic Party from within as the more radical liberal side rather than making a whole new thing. But um, yeah, you don't hear a lot of explanation as to why that isn't a viable strategy until or unless we change structural elements. And since we haven't done that yet, the voting for third parties should not come first because it just really serves to split um, electoral votes and, and even popular votes in the immediate election when there's no plan and you just start doing that first. Anyways, so the most successful third party uh, run in American history was Teddy Roosevelt in 1912. So you can see already here how far back we're going to look at the most successful one. Um, the, you know, we're talking all sorts of different climatic features, talking political climate that is, um, different features of the two parties, uh, different election laws and campaign finance laws, which have a huge impact on this type of thing. And this was actually not a presidential election that Teddy Roosevelt won. So even though we recognize the name, because obviously he did win presidential elections, um, 
this particular one was he ran as Bull Moose Progressive Party, and this was after he lost the Republican nomination. So this is not a presidential election that he went on to win, and it ended up really only serving one purpose, and that was to split the Republican vote. So the party that he came from then fractured because uh, I think Taft, William Howard Taft, was the Republican nominee that they went with. So Teddy Roosevelt lost the Republican nomination, went with Taft, then Republicans thus split the Republican vote between now third party Teddy and Taft, which served to secure the win of Woodrow Wilson, who was the Democrat. So we see even then, even in such a different climate and the strongest third party win in U.S. history, um, it didn't the third party, obviously we're talking presidential elections, which is a lot of what I'm going to discuss here because I think it does spearhead a lot of the talk about federal elections. Um, but it never in the history of this country has done anything but um, like secure the victory on the side of the political party that is furthest ideologically from the third party and the party that they're pulling votes from, if that makes sense. And I get that, you know, when I say it does nothing, sure, maybe there are ideological strengths to it. Maybe folks feel like they're voting on principle. Um, you can argue, I don't really have evidence on either side, but that it moves the needle of the party that was fractured by the third party splitting off. But, um, those are pretty amorphous stakes to be worthy of losing the election at large. Um, third parties have not won a presidential election. So laws have changed and made it even harder since that run by Teddy Roosevelt. Public funding for presidential elections are, um, or public funding is, <laughs> uh, pretty strictly conditioned. And so there's like the federal... The act is called FICA, which is dangerously close to fecal, um, but we won't talk about that. It's fine. So basically, the long story short is that to get public funding, so like federal money matching for your presidential campaign, some of which comes after you run a campaign, so it's like a guarantee that you will get paid back by taxpayer dollars for some of the stuff that is just like seen for tax purposes as good patriotic, like running to serve the highest good of the land, whatever. Um, to be eligible for that, both during the election and after as a reimbursement, you have to meet a fair amount of requirements. And so this is one of the reasons that third party candidates struggle to have a strong enough showing and thus it disincentivizes them running, and thus it, it, it kind of works as a, a cycle, right? Because then it makes it harder for them to fund their campaigns, thus fewer folks are willing to uh, launch such campaigns, and the campaigns that they do launch are less likely to win because they're smaller scale, because they're not willing to risk as much, and they have fewer resources. It just goes on and on and on. So here are some of the requirements that make it harder for third parties to run. Uh, you have to be representing a political party, so you need that, like, banner, even if it's a new one like Bull Moose at the time of TR. Um, 
you need a party. You can't just be like a lone, lone wolf type. Um, and usually that means there has to be an entity of some sort behind you. Um, and this is the more difficult one, establish eligibility by showing broad public support. And what that means in the context of the law is that the candidate must receive contributions from a minimum of 20 contributors, each contributing $5,000, which total, um, you have to get this in at least 20 states. So total, that means over $100,000. And you have to reach that through contributions in at least 20 states. So that is just to establish eligibility for any funds being matched in the primary election. Now, for minor party candidates to get funding in the general election then, so that means candidates, third party candidates, not Republican or Democrat, they need to receive at least 5% of the popular vote that results from that general nationwide election. So 5% of the popular vote, obviously we're not talking electoral college, we're talking about like individual people. That's pretty high if you think about the population of the whole country. Um, so you need at least 5% of the popular vote to be eligible for um, any general election funding. And the amount that you get, if you even hit that threshold, is only an amount that is in proportion to the proportion of the vote that you received. So that is, you know, it's hard to meet the threshold for funding, and then the funding that you get is a small proportion of funding that is available because it matches how much popular vote you got. So that gives you a bit of a picture of the reasons why in this system a third-party candidate is not going to, I should put the qualifier here, the midterms that are coming up, not a presidential election, and obviously it is a little bit easier for Senate or House of Representatives, U.S. Senate, U.S. House of Representatives candidates to be third party folks. Um, but I do think a lot of criticisms of Democrat versus Republican are going to trickle into the presidential election. And a lot of the reasons why it maybe is not so smart to vote third party in nationwide concerned races, even if it's for a state, um, your state's senator or your state's representative, um, a lot of those reasons are the same because we still need a majority in the Senate, et cetera, et cetera. So in any case, um, you can see there that like a lot of these battles are lost before they even start. And thus, it's not just about like one more principled person turning to the third party, there are institutional barriers from third party candidates from getting very far and institutional barriers that third party candidates themselves may decide not to run or not to commit more of their own funds based on. So here are some recent third party runs that, um, you know, are not Teddy Roosevelt and show the impact, the main impact that third party candidates have in presidential elections. They usually don't come close to winning. The biggest impact they have by far is to secure victory for the major party furthest from their ideology with whom they're not splitting the vote. So if it is a conservative third party, they 
tend to secure victory for the Democrat because they split the Republican vote. If it is a more liberal third party, they secure victory for the Republican because they split the Democratic vote. So Ross Perot was a third party candidate in the 90s. Um, his 6% of the popular vote led people to speculate that he helped uh, Bill Clinton beat George H.W. Bush in 92. Um, even though he got 6% of the popular vote, which, you know, looking at that funding thing, he hit the at least 5% mark, he didn't get a single electoral college vote. So this is something that we can talk about later and that you may have heard come up in electoral college discussions that the electoral college can be a bit of a problematic thing. Um, the long story short there is that Republicans are not likely to allow us to fully abolish it anytime soon because it so clearly benefits Republicans. Um, there are ways that it could be um, retooled or retailored that would not raise such a national stink. Um, so all is not lost. But the takeaway here is that even if a third party hits some still relatively low, but um, in the scheme of things, not nothing threshold for popular vote, it oftentimes, because of how the Electoral College works, doesn't mean that they actually get any states. Um, and that was the case with Ross Perot. Um, his 6% of the popular vote did not yield any states going to him. And that ultimately is how the presidential election is called. So in that sense, didn't get any states towards winning. Um, but did help Clinton beat George H.W. Bush because Ross Perot was a more conservative third party candidate. Uh, Ralph Nader was a more liberal third party candidate. So he was a Green Party candidate. Great guy. Um, so this is my personal plug slash evidence that <laughs> I am not against people who run third party, and I certainly understand that there is a need there. Um, don't begrudge the effort in retrospect. Um, maybe would have answered differently after the 2000 election, like immediately after the 2000 election, because uh, Ralph Nader got under 3% of the popular vote. So it's still in that like, oh, like notable, like we can, we can see you register on the map kind of. Um, oh, I shouldn't say map because that is confusing. He did not get any states on the electoral map. Um, but in the 2000 election, got under 3% of the popular vote, pulled Democratic votes from Al Gore in an election where there was a razor thin line in the vote count, um, both popular and then how that imputed to the Electoral College in that one uh, between Gore and George W. Bush, which was so close that it did come down to individual vote counts in places like Florida and then ultimately the Supreme Court, which was very conservative. Side note here that you see how Supreme Court appointees who are appointed by a Republican or Democratic president make a difference. Um, they decided that election ultimately for George W. Bush. So if there had been more Democratic votes, potentially going to Gore rather than Nader, um, maybe that it wouldn't have been that close because Gore did win the popular vote. If that had been a little bit more of a landslide, maybe the whole Iraq war wouldn't have happened. <laughs> it's worth noting that before leaving this section, even the popular vote numbers are not 
significant enough in any of these cases. So it's not just the Electoral College that becomes a bar to third parties winning the presidential election at large at all, because you got 3%, you got 6%. Obviously, these laws that are in place about campaign funding, etc., make a big difference with that. Um, maybe that would not be the case if we had a whole different legal structure, but we don't. And so until or unless we address that structure, this is probably what we're going to keep seeing as the outcome for third party candidates. So you can see that basically a vote for a third party is not a vote for a candidate who's going to win in these contexts. And it oftentimes only serves to take votes from likely a more ideologically similar candidate, one who's more aligned with you. Um, so it becomes akin to no vote because you're not helping break the tie or tip the balance, whatever. Um, some concepts I feel it's analogous with, if it helps to understand, um, no vote is bad. I, that's more of a basic fundamental thing that I hope people understand more now than maybe they ever did before. Um, but not voting is complacency. It's a tacit endorsement of the state of things as they are. Um, it's that whole, like, you don't have a right to complain if you don't vote because you're not actually exerting any influence. Um, and then if you compare it to like being neutral in situations of injustice, that's it's neutrality because it's not attempting to make a change um, or even assert your opinion in any way that can make a difference. Um, and if it helps to see it from an emotional like psychology standpoint, uh, it's not expressing your feelings and it's not like showing up and showing up and participating is 90% of the fucking success. I don't, you're supposed to do it. Vote. Just fucking vote. Anyways, um, it's also worth noting, and I know I've said this before, but like, I know that a lot of people vote third party on principle, um, or opt to to abstain from voting on principle, um, but nobody cares from the government or the uh, the powers that be. They're not going to knock on your door to ask why you abstain from voting, they don't care that you're not voicing your concerns. Um, your silence does not bother them at all. And they're not gonna ask about the principle behind your choice. They're not concerned. Um, nobody is going to change the existing structure or policies because you went with a candidate that had no legitimate route to office or you didn't participate. Um, this sounds mean. I don't mean to be mean. I'm literally just being desperate. This is desperation, not anger. Um, but it, I don't know. It's like you can compare it to writing in like Scooby-Doo in a presidential election. Like that's not a candidate with a legitimate path to victory. And nobody's really going to follow up with you about why you did that. Or you can even compare principal voting outside the two parties to voting in a way that isn't legal because you don't agree with the voting laws. So say you like dropped it off without a signature because you don't think people should have to sign the ballots. Um, maybe a legitimate principal, maybe making a great point, but they're just not going to count it. My cat's awake. See, she's upset too. Um, 
So then conversely, in favor of casting that vote, even if it feels futile, if the kind of negative argument isn't enough to sway you, which I totally understand, um, there is the concept of harm reduction. So I know a lot of people call this like lesser evilism, which baby, that is life. Nothing is black and white. Um, life is a lot of compromise and lesser evilism. And hey, the gap between lesser evil and greater evil right now is pretty damn big. Um, and high stakes. Like it's a wide gap and it's also like there's a lot going on. Um, so the you look for the most viable way. So the most like plausible way of avoiding the worst outcome. So you're trying to ensure the best plausible immediate result um, when you cast a vote. And I think that that is pretty reasonable and, and pretty good. So if that means that like, obviously Arizona is in my mind all the time and abortion rights are in my mind. So there's like an attorney general, there are a lot of <laughs> attorney general races, but the the Democratic candidate in Arizona will not prosecute women and physicians who are involved in the abortion-seeking process, the Republican candidate will. So that, in an immediate sense, um, you can take issue with the Democratic Party for very legitimate reasons, but who is going to put women in jail for seeking to terminate a pregnancy if they win next month? Um, you know, that's a pretty easy harm reduction type analysis to do. Um, and obviously the last thing on this front is that I totally understand that it's different in different states. So where I live right now, um, New York state, it's blue. Obviously it's a little different in the city centers versus like upstate New York, but um, think in a state like this, yeah, maybe it's certain that your senators and representatives and in the presidential election, presidential uh, electoral votes are going to go blue. But then you're there and you're voting down ballot and local issues are hugely important here. Um, plus, nothing is ever certain. Uh, I think that all of us learned that in a very scary way um, in the 2016 election and things are in flux and, you know, even external forces. I, I mean, when I just said that, I meant like, who knows about polling numbers? Who knows about like, especially on issues that involve bigotry, like sometimes people say one thing to pollsters, and then when they get in the polling location, a lot more of their prejudices come out in the privacy of the, the ballot box thingy. Um, but on top of that, you also have like foreign intervention or uh, private voter like machine companies sometimes having weird shit go on. So nothing is certain enough to say like, oh, they don't need my vote, even in the bluest of states and the most certain of elections. Um, so that plus the importance of down ballot local and state stuff. Um, it's a it's a better habit to get into to vote, even if your vote is like doubling down on something that was going to happen, then the risk of getting in the habit of abstaining from participating, you know, so not to be annoying about it, but to be annoying about it. 
All right, so strategies or lack of strategies or the difference between strategizing and not strategizing. So I mentioned in the first part of this little mini thing, the last video, last episode, um, that my motivation for wanting to add my voice to the pre-midterm election cacophony um, was an experience that I had getting, you know, trying to get involved in uh, Arizona politics by showing up for this Zoom meeting of Arizona radical women, which was, you know, something I saw advertised on Instagram, ideologically very much my speed. Um, they are like a socialist organization uh, that is focused on women's issues, but like things that affect women intersectionally. So LGBTQ issues, reproductive justice, um, healthcare, immigration, uh, poverty and homelessness in Arizona, like all sorts of things that would concern a lot of us. Um, and their stances on those things also aligned with mine. It's not like they, you know, when I say LGBTQ issues, it's not like they're anti-gay marriage. Like it's, it's my side of things. And so if you happen to align with me or if you're familiar, it tends to be the more liberal take. Um, I think it's cat. Uh, so very much my ideology, but I went to this little Zoom meeting and their official position and what they were advocating, you know, what they themselves are doing and what they're advocating for women and group members of similar ideology to do themselves is not vote or vote third party because they don't support Democrats because Democrats on a national level have not done enough. And Again, like I said last time, and like I said in the meeting, totally understand the disillusionment, both in general and in a state that produced Kirsten Cinema, who is, um, you know, a bisexual lady Democrat from Arizona. A lot of us were very excited. Um, and she has ended up being one of the most conservative Democrats and in such a tenuous Senate majority for the Democrats has been the decisive destructor of a lot of uh, points of progress. So totally understand that. But Arizona is also a state where we are currently in like a number of legal battles because abortion has been fully banned based on this law that predates Arizona's statehood that the current attorney general in the state is like really excited about enforcing because he's a little Trump baby and other, you know, candidates in Arizona are proud boy affiliates. It, it's a mess. So the stakes are very high. It's a state that has gone red in the past, but has also gone blue in the last election, last presidential election was a very close call in 2016. And thus there's hope. Um, <laughs> And there's a lot of like flux and voter suppression. So everything really does count on both the federal and state levels there. And so to be attending this meeting to try to make a difference in Arizona with people who are ideologically aligned with me and hear them essentially say our one point of action other than like attending protests is don't put your vote towards the thing that will immediately reduce harm 
it was pretty scary. Um, and we'll get to later the double issue I had with um, the fact that they don't really have a long-term strategy, so it's not like this is all a devoted, um, very thought-out way that like is the first step to dismantling the Electoral College and you know campaign finance laws that require a two-party system, and they're going to do that really fast, and thus they're just like starting a little early on this side of things. No, they didn't have a plan for that, um, or even express knowledge of that. They essentially just said like, yeah, it's a bummer when people say we're throwing our votes away. So that scared me. And then right after I went to that meeting, and this is one of the really interesting things about the strategy, I was listening to a guy named Robert Draper, who has been working on something for, I think he wrote a, a book, but there's also a piece in the New York Times Magazine called Arizona's Anti-Democracy Experiment. And so this allowed me to compare this liberal pro-women group in Arizona's strategy with its similarities to the strategies used by conservative groups in Arizona to ensure Republican wins. Pretty scary. Um, so Robert Draper did this piece called Arizona's Anti-Democracy Experiment, talking about, which I mentioned last time too, how the... MAGA Republicans, hi honey, the MAGA Republicans have really been successful in Arizona in taking over the Republican Party and rebranding it and really stamping out any traces of the somewhat middle ground Republican Party of John McCain. Um, so now it is totally MAGA Republican land in Arizona. Um, so there's a current candidate who's on the ballot in Arizona now, Jake Hoffman, and he was involved with uh, Republican media and activist groups. There are two different ones that he was involved with. One was called Rally Forge. One was called Turning Point USA. The only reason I think it's worth saying these is like, in case you hear these names sometime in the future, bad. Um, they're both like Republican media and activist groups. Turning Point USA, the latter group, was headed by a guy named Charlie Kirk, also bad. And it's more youth-centric. And one of their missions for... Uh, you know, conservative activism via Turning Point USA was organizing these troll farms on social media. And one of their main strategies was using rhetoric on social media and stories and fake facts to try to dissuade Democrats from voting in Arizona and or persuade them to vote third party so that they could diminish Arizona Democratic turnout. So conservative party groups in Arizona and I can only assume nationwide, if not already, certainly to come. Um, their strategy is to try to get Democrats to vote third party or not vote Democrat at all. Um, and that is the same strategy that I'm hearing from a lot of liberal groups, uh, not just this one that I went to, Arizona Radical Women, but that was one of the loudest expressions and most memorable ones. So what I think is happening is that a lot of these groups, particularly the socialist ones, um, which sucks because like I agree with a lot of, you know, socialized healthcare and education strategies. I, again, ideology is very much on brand with what I tend to agree with, and I think what a lot of us do. But the organizing often comes from like central entities in maybe California, New York, DC. So blue areas and their messaging out to other branches is maybe 
not super regionally aware of the risks and not necessarily tailored to different regions. So they, when they're organizing in blue states, it isn't as big a deal, even though it kind of is for the reasons I stated before. But it doesn't sound as troubling to say, don't vote Democrat, at least not in the immediate sense. There aren't the immediate criticisms available if you say that in New York City. But then I think they probably disseminate that same messaging to chapters in red states or purple states and don't tailor it because they want a cohesive thing or they just have not put the effort in, whatever. Um, and I have a feeling this is happening with a lot of advocacy groups and their political messages if they are national organizations and oftentimes those ones get more traction. So the other piece that I mentioned briefly before that bothers me is the fact that these groups are not really offering a coherent long-term strategy that attempts to address the gaps. But let me explain that. Obviously, a lot of them are having the issues that many of us have on you know, different levels to different degrees with the current system, you know, that it's underrepresentative. The Electoral College, for example, um, if we're talking presidential, does not adequately capture um, population differences. And then you throw in things like gerrymandering and whatnot, that people feel underrepresented and disenfranchised in the voting process. And then the group that is the lesser evil, that sometimes people have to do a lot of internal bargaining to come to terms with voting for, falls short for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's because uh, the majority is not as strong as we'd hoped, and I think that this is kind of undercredited in people's conversations about how the Democrats have fallen short. Um, that the majority that the Democrats have in the House and Senate is still too narrow to allow any deviation within the party. And it requires so much cohesion that we don't have yet. And anything that requires more than just like 51 to 49 vote, for example, um, because some things require like a supermajority or um, two thirds, like different types of changes require different things. Um, so even if you have everybody, some of the larger scale changes, which would make more of a difference, um, require more than just a simple majority. So that's one reason why folks might feel their candidates fall short. Um, then sometimes promises aren't kept sometimes because folks are over laden with the promises they've made and so they've spread themselves too thin obviously some of that is dishonest in the campaigning process i think some of it is probably not as bad faith because it's like you know so many folks are working to get so much done and then you have the new issues that come up and corporate money is is also a factor um and even other donor money so loyalty tends to be connected to money. Obviously, that is going to be a thing until or unless we fully change campaign finance laws, which is its own. It's kind of you get stuck in the same circle because we can't do that without more of our own people and more of the branches of government, et cetera, et cetera. So 
I understand why folks are disillusioned with the current system and they see gaps in the fairness of the current system. But I also don't see a coherent strategy coming from a lot of these groups that would fix it either in the long term or short term. So if the third parties don't win now, um, and there's no plan to make the system such that third parties can win in future, I'm a lot less inclined to believe that anything about the strategy is thought out and thus less inclined to follow their instructives. Um, I don't know, it's just wild to hear groups saying things that I believe in and then organizing protests that I would go to purportedly to influence the elected officials and policies when like the actual elected officials and policies are on the ballot, but they refuse to do the direct thing to make those changes um, because it's not perfect. And I say this all the time, but perfect should not be the enemy of the good, especially in things like politics when we're trying to represent so many people and so many conceptions of good in this country. And even within the conceptions of good, so many strategies, like you can't, you can't be looking at, at or for perfection. Um, luckily, long-term strategies that are viable are not really mutually exclusive from instant harm reduction, that we can do both. Um, it doesn't mean that we can't be looking for more party representation, like number of parties or breadth within existing parties or taking over the existing parties. There's no reason that that has to or is or should be mutually exclusive from in the instant election, the coming election, um, doing the thing that reduces harm, even if it doesn't feel perfect to you. So that's the good news. And that's what we're going to talk about next. I mean, I do want to be kind of quick about these long term strategies about um, the most plausible ways to fix what needs to be fixed with our system in terms of voting and making folks feel better represented. There's the electoral process piece that is kind of its own deal um, that has its own sphere of issues, which is, um, it's related to the issue of, of voting or not voting because obviously feeling disenfranchised uh, or not having time off from work to go vote, for example, or being ill-represented in your district, um, those are absolutely things that relate to the practicality and influence of voting. Um, I'm more focused on things in the immediate like electoral process, just because we got to stop the, uh, the conversation somewhere. Anyways, so some things that we can actually focus on changing so that we're not always tolerating a two-party system that we don't agree with and still expected to vote because it's the best we got. Um, so tackling things like the two-party protections in campaign finance, um, so things that make it harder for third parties to get funding in a general election and in a primary context for the presidential elections, that would make a difference. Um, I tend to think that tackling things like the Electoral College and elements of it would not only help third parties, but also help um, representation. So it's like the more efficient way to tackle the issue. So if we're gonna talk about the Electoral College, uh, taking the winner take all system of winning states out of that 
would be great and it's an easier but still effective version of abolishing the electoral college which is something that a lot of folks talk about it's a great idea because the electoral college technically the college itself is not in the constitution um the reference to electors is there so there was you know you'd have to amend something if you wanted to burn the whole thing down but a lot of the rules about how we delegate number of votes that go to each state, how states run their caucuses and primaries, um, you know, divvying up how many votes go to different candidates, uh, how many electoral votes go to candidates based on the popular vote within states. Um, a lot of states right now do it as a winner-take-all type system, which can cut out popular vote representations that might go to third-party candidates. Um, some states out here on the East Coast have like collective agreements that um, this might be worth delving into in another episode because I would also like to understand it better myself, but I, it's something like they will agree to pool electors or like to comply with what the popular vote is dictating sort of idea. Um, one solution that's not electoral college related but would serve to solve similar issues is the ranked choice preferential voting that has been recently instituted in New York, um, which is essentially like, okay, this is my first favorite candidate, but if they don't win or there's no plausible route to victory or in a primary they're not going to be nominated, things like that, this is who my second choice is. So if that becomes the more viable thing, um, give my vote to them. That makes it easier and to have more options and also maybe more palatable to vote for people who um, you don't love but may have a better chance at winning. So if you had ranked choice, for example, and you put a third party at top, but then said, but if they're not winning, I'll go for the Democrat rather than the Republican, that would be a great solution. Um, and all these things are easier to advertise um, in a two-party, thus plausible to win sense because Republicans are not likely to ever endorse any version of abolishing the Electoral College. It simply gives too much representation to low population um, areas and states that like the fact that it is so ensconced in our system and it is the only protection when popular votes would so easily trounce them. Like, it's a sad reality, but the reality is that in the current system, they have enough influence to prevent abolishing the Electoral College altogether. So all these things, um, changing or standardizing caucus and primary rules, uh, getting rid of the winner-take-all thing, um, maybe some state collective agreements about what to do in cases of ties or overflows or, you know, popular vote favoring one thing, ranked choice or preferential voting, proportionate representation, like as an effort. So maybe tweaking the maximum number of electoral votes, for example, because there's a minimum number of electoral votes that's given to any state. Um, but the range in population, especially as states have grown, makes it such that the greatest number of electoral votes 
that's given to the larger states. So states like California, uh, New York, Texas, Florida, um, they are not, oh, Arizona's up there too, I think, right? Uh, they're not proportional because the gap in population is so much bigger than like two to 20 or something. So tweaking the number of electoral votes would be easier than abolishing it also um, and could make things a little more proportionate. Um, I think, and I've mentioned this in this very episode before, but taking over the Democratic Party as MAGA Republicans did with the Republican Party um, would be a very easy way to do it. So not quite if you can't beat them, join them, but if you can't beat them, beat them from within sort of thing. Like if you don't like what the Kirsten Cinemas of the world are doing, run against her and primary her. Not run against her as a third party, but primary her as a Democrat. And that is honestly something I have considered myself. So that type of thing, um, or get behind a candidate who can do it. Like it doesn't mean you have to run for office yourself, but be the grassroots takeover of the Georgia Democratic Party. Like, and that exists there and it kind of is happening, but being more comfortable doing that. And the one big barrier I see to this, which I hope people can get past in our age group is the internal aesthetics and the name recognition that like, there is so much um, like aesthetic appeal to being anti-Democrat. Um, in the same way, oh, my partner and I were talking recently about like how this generation, especially on social media, has kind of lost the difference between critical thought and critique. That like criticism is something that people use as like a clout tool now. And so it's kind of in to be anti-Democrat, which is not to say that it's not valid to be anti-Democrat or even that they cite valid reasons, but there is like an aesthetic um, and like reputational boon to being against the Democratic Party. And I worry that that is so deep and so much of a reason for some people, obviously not the people who I'm talking to or else this wouldn't land, but like that some younger people or outliers in the group would be very vocally against taking over the Democratic Party just because it would mean that they still ascribe to the name Democrat. Um, it's maybe easier to do this on a smaller scale on a local and state level, though, because once you get involved on those levels, it's easier to see the practical impact of what you're doing. And it's also easier to get involved in a way that you really could do that type of takeover. So I think that's something that like, I know I'm just like talking to all my online friends, but like, let's strategize and if we have the ears of any of the big time strategizers in our unorganized, disorganized, but also not an organization, whatever. This is something we should do as youths who care. Um, I mean, another option is like full embrace of socialist policies and just like making that the party that we subscribe to, which I would say is kind of the last step. We'd have to lay the framework for the third party to win first. But I do think there's risk there on the other side of like boomer voters and even people who grew up believing their boomer parents. Uh, there's so much stigma to the name of socialism, even if the policies are socialist. 
And there's so many misunderstandings and branding problems with just that label that could be exploited. And then you also see in certain immigrant communities too, that socialism for folks who pointedly fled from either socialist or communist countries, there's still the implication. So like Cuban immigrant communities, um, Vietnamese immigrant communities, I was just talking to a friend of mine whose family came from Vietnam and her parents will never vote Democrat because they advocate for socialist things. So imagine you called the whole party socialist. There are risks of the labeling aesthetics on both sides, um, but just talking about options. Um, a lot of these options and the whole party, the whole side of this ideology, even beyond the Democratic Party, is, would benefit from better branding. Um, we, on the liberal side of the aisle, do a really relatively bad job of advertising in a catchy and comprehensible way, and the Republicans do a really good job of it. Like the whole pro-life thing, for example, um, has become what people call people on that side of that issue, which is crazy because it's, it's wrong. Same with like partial birth abortion, not a clinical term, not even correct, not what anybody calls it, but it's what people call it now. And MAGA, like they're good with the phraseology. And part of it is that they don't have the same alliance with reality, but I don't think our need to be moral is a total bar to better branding. So, and then I feel like cohesion too, because we do eat our own. And I know we've talked about this before, but stop, let's love each other, damn it. Um, okay, so a quick word after going through some of those strategy options. Uh, like if you're ever lo looking for something to advocate for or want to learn more about a cause or a change that sounded palatable, maybe see if anything's something like a local group has championed and get more involved. Those are some good options. Or if you're organizing yourself and you want to make an effort to make it more viable to vote third party or vote outside the two party system, those are some things to actively be looking at to make it easier to have more options or win with better options, things like that. Um, final word for this episode on the Merrill versus Milligan case, which is the gerrymandering redistricting case that is before the Supreme Court of the U.S. right now. Um, going back a little bit, the Voting Rights Act that came about um, in Jim Crow era to prevent a certain number of states in the South from doing overtly racist things in their voting policies, whether it be poll taxes or weird districting, all sorts of stuff, um, it essentially required certain states to get approval from greater oversight committees if they were going to institute like new weird voting laws in those areas. And it was because of the legacy that those areas had of disenfranchising, especially people of color and um, the impact that had been seen. So that was first gutted by a, another conservative Supreme Court, unfortunately a less conservative Supreme Court than the one we have right now. Um, in the Shelby County case, Speaking of dissents, Justice Ginsburg did a great dissent, God rest her soul, um, about how we shouldn't get rid of the Voting Rights Act just because you're seeing less discrimination, which was the reason that the conservative court gave. Um, and she said, well, that's basically like throwing out your umbrella because you're not getting wet in a rainstorm. Uh, such to say that the reason that we were seeing less discrimination in voting 
was that the Voting Rights Act was working, not that it was no longer needed. So it's been gutted to some extent. Some of it still stands. And under that, these Alabama districting changes have been challenged. And the lower federal court uh, struck down the redistricting because it was that uh, disproportionate. So Alabama, their population is 27% black, but only one congressional district is majority black. So the Republican district drawers in the state have managed to essentially rope everybody who is black into one district and thus reduce their representation, um, make it the lowest, most disproportionate way that they possibly can represent a like a segment of the population that is numbers-wise way larger. Um, so that has not been decided yet. I don't feel great about it because we do have Katanji Brown-Jackson on the bench now. She has joined this new term, but unfortunately, or fortunate, I mean, fortunate that she's there, but she was replacing um, one of the other liberal justices, so it doesn't change the number. It's still 6-3 conservative. So it, if um, all stays as it is, there's no relief in sight despite this awesome new jurist being on the bench. There is some fun if you listen to the oral arguments because she has been trouncing some of the originalists, so-called originalists on the court, by looking at the original intent of things like the Equal Protection Clause and the Voting Rights Act, which, like... Originalism is all well and good until somebody cites, like, equal protection type intentions or intentions that aren't super conservative, and then conservatives tend to get their pennies in a bunch. Um, so that's fun, especially because the laws in question that she's citing the intent of were intended to protect against racial discrimination. So there's no doubt about it. So where is your loyalty to intent now? But logic and morality shaming don't really work in the same way when people on the other side don't have a ton of scruples. On that optimistic note, I'm going to go. Um, you can check other stuff I do out at mkzjoybrennan.com or follow me or say hi or ask questions about what you want to hear more about, um, either there via email or I am on social media at mkzjoybrennan. Um, be good, be safe, be happy, and if you are in a state where you can still register to vote and you haven't, do it now. Look into it today. And everybody, vote. Okay, bye.